Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Blessing and a privilege for us to be together on the Lord's Day once again. To come alongside together in God's Word. Won't you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We are picking up where we left off uh, last week. This week we are picking it up from verse 22. Okay, we're going to go all the way down to verse uh, 41. So uh, for this first moment, I'm just going to read from verse 22 um, until uh, verse 29. And then we'll pick up the rest as we go on. Hear God's word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. A story is told of a Hindu religious leader in India uh, during the riot killings that followed the partition that created uh, Hindu India and Muslim Pakistan in 1947. A, A fellow Hindu Uh, approaches this priest to confess a great wrong. I killed a child, the distraught man says. Why did you do that? asks the priest. They killed my boy. The Muslims killed my son, so I then killed one of their children. The priest says, okay, I know a way out of Naraka, which is the Hindu hell. I know a way out of Naraka. 
Find a Muslim boy whose mother and father have been killed and raise him up as your own son. And make sure that you raise him as a Muslim. In many ways, the story illustrates our shared experience of guilt. Guilt as a result of evil done by us is something the human population's population experiences as much as experiences laughter and love. When we have done wrong, we can become overcome with sadness and sometimes with serious shame or depression of many kinds and we looked for relief in some particular places. This Hindu priest gives the classic solution in human history for guilt. Try to find a way to make it right. Find a way to do something that is opposite to what you did and thereby relieve yourself of the guilt. Well, that strategy might help you to appease yourself, but does it really garner a clear slate before God? And what if there isn't actually a way to reverse what you did? What if what you did was so evil, so shameful, that you can't even speak of it in public? What is the true solution? To find a clear conscience and a clear confidence that your sin will not be held against you. Peter's sermon to the Jews, to the Israelites, has answers to these questions. His sermon features primarily a charge of guilt against the Israelites for killing their Messiah. You see, the Jews, by killing Jesus, have counted themselves among the enemies of the Messiah. And this is a terrifying thing, because the Jews knew that the Messiah is undefeatable, that the Messiah is the forever living, forever reigning King. So what seems to you and I uh, as just a rehashing of known facts, as Peter repeats these facts of what has happened here, to the Jews that day is terrible news. Because it means that they have become the enemies that God will make a footstool for the Messiah. But in the midst of that fear, in the midst of that terror, God gives the Jews hope. So let's walk through the sermon together. And as we walk through this text together this morning, I want, to see, I want you to see a few things. I want you to see the seriousness of Israel's sin, the freeness of God's grace to them, the definiteness of God's plan to save them, and the hope that their salvation shows to us. The first point that Peter makes here is that Jesus was God's man. Jesus was God's man. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. It is no secret to anyone with a cursory knowledge of the Bible that Jesus Christ is absolutely the central figure of biblical history. But not only that, According to the scriptures, he is the central figure of all human history. It comes, as little, it comes as a little surprise then to find that the Jews themselves in Christ's lifetime did not discern this reality. I and mean, you might wonder, did they not have enough information? 
What is it that we know that they didn't know at the time? Was there something else that was, that was supposed to be shown to them that was required for them to actually believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Peter here in front of us says, No, this Jesus, this man from Nazareth, was attested by God to you through many signs and wonders and mighty works that God did in their midst. You see, the Israelites here were supposed to be Jesus' witnesses. They were the ones who saw for themselves that Jesus was no normal man. There were many people throughout the first century and before the first century who had tried to claim to be something, but none of them had the attestation through miracles and signs that Jesus had. None of them raised people from the dead. None of them healed lepers. None of them escaped death at will numerous times. None of them fed thousands with a few loaves of bread. None of them had the voice of God publicly announce that this is the beloved Son that should be listened to. The Jews had every witness they needed and they still did not listen. This was not new, of course. The nation of Israel had often proven themselves to be stiff-necked, disobedient, and full of grumbling, even after God had done many wonders to show them that He is for them. In many ways, that, that they had already betrayed God numerous times before in the past. And here now, with Christ Jesus, they betray Him again by giving Him over to the Romans uh, to be killed for no reason. If you read the Gospels, it becomes very clear to you that the execution of Jesus Christ was a sham of justice. It was planned in closed doors with the outcome already determined. He was arrested at night so that the crowds wouldn't see it. There were no formal charges against him. False witnesses were brought in to say all kinds of known falsehoods against him. No judge was able to find any fault with him. They had to throw him around. And the main reason that he ended up being killed was because the Roman governor wanted to avoid a protest. The Jews wanted him dead and they were willing to cause an absolute upheaval in order to get what they wanted. The Jewish nation betrayed him. Now they, even though it was clear, clearly revealed to them who he was. Peter then goes on to state that this delivering of Jesus Christ was their doing and was part of God's plan. Look with me at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says... He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan of God here suggests that God himself had orchestrated this. That the death of Jesus Christ was inextricably linked to God's plan for the universe. It speaks of the unmoving plan, the plan for all time. And Jesus' death was necessary in accordance with that plan. 
The foreknowledge of God here refers to the fact that God, being himself not limited by time, knows the end from the beginning. Jesus' death was planned by God. Jesus' death was guaranteed by God. From this statement, it is clear to everyone uh, that the person that is in charge of Jesus' death, at least from what Paul Peter says here, just in verse 22, is God. You can't miss it. Peter is saying that the events happened, happened, they happened in a way that was not haphazard, that they were planned in heaven. But then, in the same breath, he says that the Jews were the ones who did it. Read it, read verse 20, verse 23 again. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You are guilty for his death. So how are we to understand this? Who exactly is responsible? Is it God in his plan and foreknowledge? Or is it the Jews in their guilt and rejection of Christ? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? Well, many people have tried to solve this in many different ways throughout church history. To try and find a solution to these twin realities that the Bible says very clearly. One solution that has been proposed is that which is called open theism. Open theism. And open theism suggests that God does not know the future. God is not in control of the future. Um, Here's a a popular open theist uh, by the name of Greg Boyd. This is what he says. In the Christian view, God knows all reality, everything there is to know. But to assume he knows ahead of time how every person is going to freely act assumes that each person's free activity is already there to know, even before he freely does it. But clearly it's not. If we have been given freedom, we create the reality of our decisions by making them. And until we make those decisions, they do not exist. Thus, in my view, there simply isn't anything to know until we make it there to know. So God can't foreknow the good or bad decisions of the people he creates until he creates these people and they in turn create these decisions. So this man is arguing very clearly and very eloquently, I might add, that the the future is created by us when we make our decisions. So God cannot be trusted with any plans that he makes because God doesn't know what, what decision you and I are going to take. This leaves us at sea. It means that we can't have any kind of hope because nothing is certain. We can't know anything for sure. We cannot trust it when God in the Old Testament says the Messiah will come and he will die and by the stripes on his body people will be saved. We can't trust it. Uh, this, is not a, this is an inferior solution. Here's another solution by another person. Um, a different one to open theism. This is more what it will, is, is called uh, many different things. It's a, a redefinition of foreknowledge. Um, And this man says it this way. If you accept that God's plan to save has great detail and God knows and acts on that plan, 
with that much great detail, then you need to be willing to credit God with all the evil that happens in the world. Something that I am unwilling to do. We believe scripture would indicate that God's will is more permissive. He allows humanity some autonomy to make choices and be responsible for them. And God's plan is to save all who will believe. This man is trying to do a noble thing. He's trying to make sure that evil and the evil decisions that we make are not attributed to God. That is a noble task, but it is a misguided task. God's word has already made it clear that he cannot be tempted with evil and he himself does not tempt anyone with evil. However, the solution that this gentleman proposes leaves the plan decidedly not definite. If the plan is there to save, but it might not happen because perhaps the Jews might choose to not have crucified Jesus, then the plan itself cannot be said to be definite. If it's up to the Jews, then there's nothing definite because the Jews might decide, let's not kill him. Actually, these signs are compelling. The reality, dear friends, that these are all inferior solutions to serious tensions. The the reality is that what we have is a conundrum in front of us that the Bible does not even attempt to solve. The scripture makes it clear that God is in charge of everything that happens. And at the same time, we are responsible for our choices. It's a tension. It is a real tension. And we need to live with that tension. God is in charge of everything. But you and I will have to answer for the way that we act. The fact that God had planned Christ's death, predicted Christ's death, and fastened the hope of the world on Christ's death does not nullify the Jews' responsibility for killing their own king. And what's more evil here in this text, in verse 23, is that they killed him by the hands of evil men. Perhaps the greatest tragedy of Jewish history, at least in my view, is recorded for us by John. In John chapter 19, verse 15, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea, asked the Jews, Shall I crucify your king? He asked them, Shall I crucify your king? And the Jews respond with a treasonous, evil, idolatrous, abominable statement. We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. The Jews have said, this is not our king. Our king is your king. So you kill him for us. They have exchanged the true king. They've denied the king who took them out of Egypt, who cared for them, who fed them. They're denying him. And in his place, they're choosing the Roman to be their king. And then they're asking the Roman to kill the king who has cared for them, who actually made them into a nation. And who had come to, at that day, at that time, to gather them to himself. You remember the Lord Jesus looking out over Jerusalem and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, weeping over Jerusalem, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I would have wanted like a hen to draw you in and cover you, but you just do not listen. This is their king, the one who loves them, the one who's cared for them, and they reject him. 
The guilt of the Jews is clearly stated here. Now, what makes it bad for the Jews, what makes it even worse, what makes this a problem situation for the Jews, is that Jesus did not stay dead. It would have been one thing if he stayed dead. They would have been vindicated, you see? It's just another guy. But he did not stay dead. Look at verse 24 with me. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then, and then he interprets this text. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we, are, we all are witnesses. When he says we all, he's referring to the 120. Peter makes a statement in verse 24 that should bring terror to the Jews. That he didn't stay dead because it was impossible for him to stay dead. Why was it impossible for Jesus Christ to stay dead? What separates him from all these other people who have stayed dead for all of history? What, why is it for him not possible to stay dead? Well, he then goes on to quote Psalm 16 to show that the scriptures had proclaimed that he would live. And he makes it clear that David could not be talking about himself when he says these things here in Psalm 16 because David is dead and stayed dead. As a prophet, David was, he was speaking of one of his own descendants, the man Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. He doesn't stay dead. And that's a problem on its own for the Jews because this is clearly a special person. This is clearly the, the signs that were there in the begin, before while he was alive have followed him even to death such that he, he rises again from the dead. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He didn't stay dead. But what actually happened? He rose up, ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ does what no man has been afforded before or has been able to do. To enter into the presence of the Father and to sit at His right hand until He has conquered all of His enemies. 
This here is not just a declaration of the exaltation of Christ. It is also a declaration that the enemies of Christ are as good as destroyed. They will be made a footstool for Christ. That Jesus himself will not be won over, but as the promised Messiah, he will conquer any and all who oppose him. Let's, talk a, let's just take a bit of a sidetrack here and, and pause for a moment and take some application from this. The footstool comment here is less a threat and more a statement of fact. He will step on his enemies. There is no enemy of Christ who remains an enemy of Christ that will not be dealt with. There is an important lesson that is, that is to be learned by us from Paul's interpretation of this particular idea. And the fact that Christ is going to step over his enemies. Hold your place in Acts and come with me just for a second to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to show you what Paul uh, draws out from there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and come with me for a second to verse 24. Look at what Paul says about this. He is talking about the, the really the end, how everything is going to be wrapped up. And in verse 24, he says this. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Under his enemies, Paul counts the spiritual powers that have opposed Christ. You see, when he says every rule and every authority and power, he's talking about all the spiritual realities that have been there throughout the world opposing him. The demonic powers over different countries and different religions, religions that have opposed Christ and held people captive to falsehood. Christ will destroy them all. So what are you to take from that? What's the application from that? Dear friend, this morning, you, need, you have no need to fear demons. You with me? You have no need to fear the powers of the dead, if they have any power. You have no need to fear the things that are in the spiritual realm. You have no need to fear witchcraft, curses, the devil himself. Christ reigns over all of this and he will destroy all of them. Yours is to go to the strong man who can bind all of them and will destroy all of them. And that strong man is Christ Jesus. Do not be fearful of, of any kind of supernatural thing under, under current. Do not be fearful of any generational curse or, or anything like this. Trust Christ, the man who's, who's got power over the spiritual realities and will make a footstool of all of them. Are you with me? But also, the reality that he will destroy his enemies should give his people great hope. Do you remember what Paul himself said when he, what, what, what Paul himself was persecuting the church? That Jesus came to him and asked him, why are you persecuting me? And Paul is asking, is, it, is saying, who are you, Lord? He's saying, I've, I've never met you, I've never persecuted you. Well, what was happening is that Paul was persecuting the church. And Christ takes that extremely personally. 
He's saying, when you, if you are persecuting my church, you're persecuting me. So for those of us who perhaps will go through some kind of persecution, or those of us who will go through some kind of hardship because of our faith in Christ, we have great hope knowing that Christ will avenge us. Christ is the one who will rule over, who will reign over his enemies. Now, the best way is that the one that we pray for is that Christ converts these people who are persecuting us. That Christ makes these people, give these people a blessing. But if they re- re- refuse and they persist in doing that and persist in hurting the church of Jesus Christ, we do not take a v- vengeance on ourselves. We leave them to our Lord who will, ma- who will crush them under his feet. But I want you to also notice there that the last enemy to be destroyed is what? It's death. It's death. The nagging decay of humanity, the, the persistent and abiding decay, the, the weakness, the death that is, that is with us as soon as we are alive, it will be rolled up and destroyed by Christ. Well, the pain that comes with it, the mourning that comes with it, the weakness, the frustration that comes with it, all of it. Lord, the Lord says in Revelation 21, I will wipe away all the tears of my people. Let me encourage you with this reality. The fact that Christ will make a footstool of all of his enemies. The fact, well, in fact, in the text here, it says the Father will make the footstool of all the enemies of Christ. That reality should give us great hope. But now, come back with me to Acts chapter 2 and let's conclude the matter here in verse 36 here's a summary of Paul's sermon to the Jews here's the summary of Paul's message to the Jews so not Paul Peter Peter's message to the Jews here in verse 36 this is what he says let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified You Jews, you must know this for a fact. You must be sure that this is the Messiah. When he says God has made him both Lord and Christ, he means that now Christ has been coronated. He is now taking up his official duties as the Messiah. And you guys killed him. Here's the summary of Peter's sermon. Israel is guilty of treason and rebellion against their Messiah. They were the people of God, but they persisted in their Old Testament ways of not listening to God. So what is the abiding lesson for us from the sin and rebellion of the Jews? Is there an abiding lesson for us? I think there is. And here it is. Those in Christ must learn from the rebellion of Israel and not repeat it. Those in Christ must learn from the persisting rebellion, persisting rebellion of, of Israel and not repeat it. Let me show you our application from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul is talking about Israel's rebellion in the Old Testament. Um, and he's talking about how they rebelled, and then he maps that to us living now in Christ. And you'll see that the lessons are similar. Israel not only rebelled against Christ throughout their history, they rebelled against Christ while He was there 
and they ended up killing him. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'll read for you from verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased that for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor are we to grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. Here's the abiding lesson for us from the rebellion of Israel. Do not repeat it. The Jews rejected the Lord Jesus Christ for many reasons. There were different reasons from different people why they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not repeat it. Do not do it. Do not put Christ to the test. Do not indulge in sexual immorality. Do not put away things that God hates. Do not put Him to the test. Learn from their mistakes. I've heard it said in the past that a smart man learns from his own mistakes, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. As a reality for us, we must read these things and learn to not rebel and not uh, put Christ to the test. Well, after Peter's sermon, after Peter has, has laden them with guilt and has shown them that they're guilty because they've killed their Messiah, they've, pilled, they've killed their king, the God's forever king will reign forever, the crowd responds. Look at verse 37 with me in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Those who know God know that there is mercy with Him. If God shows you your guilt, if God reads you your charge sheet, if God brings to your attention your sins, He is calling you to repentance. The Jews here recognize that something can be done. Okay, we killed the Messiah. Okay, we are evil and we have done a serious wrong. Okay, we get it. But the very reason, Peter, that you are speaking to us is because surely something, must be, something can be done. Perhaps they noticed what Peter said in verse 33. 
That as Jesus Christ ascends to the throne, He pours out His Spirit. And they understood that He's not all anger and fire and brimstone. Because pouring out of His Spirit on human flesh is a sign of friendship. When the the Spirit of God descends on human flesh, that is a great sign of friendship with God. He poured out His Spirit on the 120 as a seal of His friendship with them. They discern, these Jews here, these these guys standing here, these thousands here, they discern that something can be done perhaps to get us with our sins and and all of our evil on the right side of the Messiah. They asked the apostles, what can we do? What shall be done? You see, there are a number of possible responses to being told that you're guilty. When you're being told that you're guilty, there's a number of different things you can do. The first thing you can do is deny. Okay? Deny everything. And deny and play a game of going this way and that way and denying. Uh, Holding in and holding firm in your guilt and saying, no, I'm not guilty, you're wrong, even though you are. Trying to appease yourself. When you're, when you're being called out, sincerely being called out on something wrong that you did, deny it. There's another one, and there's a defensiveness. A, 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 a deep-seated saying, there's no way that I am capable of doing what you just said I've done. Therefore, I'm going to... No, you, didn't, you misunderstood me, you didn't hear me. Pro- there's a defensiveness that can, that can happen when you're being called out on your guilt. And you're saying, no, the problem is really with you. It's not really with me. I was, uh, when I did this, or when I, when I, no, no, you don't understand. There's a defensiveness. There's also a hiding and averting the issue. Oh, 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 I did that wrong thing. Oh, okay. Trying to hide in a, in a conversation, someone calling you out and then trying to avert, change the subject, not to dwell on the issue. Uh, there's a hiding and averting, and perhaps even when your guilt inside you is ringing at you, and then you try and just, uh, just satiate yourself with other things, watching stuff, eating stuff, going places, just trying to put your guilt aside so that you can hide and avert the issue. All of these ways, denial, defensiveness, hiding and averting, all of them lead to destruction. All of them lead to destruction. The best response when you're being told by God that you're guilty is to say, okay, I agree. Yes, I am guilty. What can be done? I am guilty. Is there forgiveness for me? Is there mercy for me? What can be done? Yes, I'm evil. I've done things unspeakable. Yes, I've said things unspeakable. I've acted in ways that shouldn't be done. What can be done? Is there mercy for me? Can I get forgiveness for what I have done? That is by far the best response. And if you come to God with that kind of response, my friend, this is what you're going to receive. Look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, Are they they're contrite in their hearts? They're they're, they're pressing. This is what Peter says to them. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. My dear friend, if you plead guilty before God, if you agree with His assessment of the situation, and you ask Him for mercy, you will not get a few years in purgatory. You won't have to have some kind of punishment. You won't have to do some kind of penance for what you have done. You don't get a reduced sentence if you plead guilty with God. But rather, you are offered a full and free forgiveness on the spot. Because Jesus Christ died. On the spot. Full full and free forgiveness. No reduced sentence. No hoops to jump. Just repent and believe. Come to Christ for the clear, for cleansing, for the forgiveness of your sins. And not only that, there's not only forgiveness, but if they repent and are baptized, they will share in the Holy Spirit. Which means they will have friendship with God. There won't be, he goes on to say, there won't be an abiding, immovable curse on their children because of their, rebel, because of their rebellion. But rather, their children themselves can receive that same spirit if they repent and be baptized in Christ. It's not because, no, the Jews, imagine the Jews are standing there and they know that, okay, they've really messed up. They've heard this, we've really messed up. Our children are doomed. Our whole nation, our whole name is doomed. There's nothing that can be done. But they ask, what can be done? And, and Peter says, if you repent and believe in Christ Jesus, you will have friendship with God. And if your children also repent and believe in Jesus, they will have friendship with God. There won't be any abiding curse. There won't be any casting out. If you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, this, it will be as if you never did this sin. Your slate will be wiped completely and utterly clean. And, he, he's, he's, and then, of course, he opens it up to everyone. He says, it's not just, it's for you, it's for your children, it's for all who are far off. It's for Jews who are here, it's for Jews who are over there, it's for non-Jews who are here, non-Jews who are everywhere. This promise of forgiveness of sin and friendship with God by having the Holy Spirit is a promise for everyone. What are you guilty of this morning? What is the nagging thing that's in your conscience that's saying you're, you're exposed? Who are the group of people that you avoid because you feel exposed, they've seen your sin? What are you guilty of? Let me just, where perhaps have you felt deep shame because of what you have done? By coming to Jesus Christ, you will be completely forgiven. And you will receive friendship with God. It will be as though that never happened. If you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have friendship with Him. If you come to Him asking and saying, Is there mercy for me? The resounding, repeated, loud answer that you will hear is yes. Yes, there is mercy for you. Come, and not only is there mercy, there is friendship. You are now a child of heaven. 
And Peter goes on here to, to exhort them, the Jews, and, and, and says to them in verse 40, to, to, to save themselves from this crooked generation. He's, he's repeating, come, save yourself. This wicked, crooked generation is lost. It's done many sins. Escape from it. How do you escape from this crooked generation? By coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the boat of escape. And all of those who hear Peter, 3,000 on that same day, repented and believed. See, that number 3,000 is, is an important number. When we hear a number like that, that mass, 3,000, you know what it's saying to us? It's saying the mercy that God offers knows no bounds. All kinds of people are counted in those 3,000. Those people in those 3,000 weren't just guilty of killing Christ. They were guilty of many other sins. Many other unspeakables. But 3,000 of those who repented and believed, who came to Christ, they were given, they were given forgiveness freely. This is a message to you, as it was a message to Israel. That if you come, there is forgiveness even for you. Let's pray.